probably get to practice being Presbyterian or something today. Over here, it's a little bit different angle, but I like it. One of the most loved stories in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. We love that story because a small shepherd boy faces down the giant Goliath in the name of the Lord, and uh, he gets to walk away victorious, right, by God's power he slays the giant and no one expected him to win but in that moment God turned things upside down no one expected David to be king either Saul was a pretty obvious choice if you read uh, 1 Samuel 9 you'll uh, see that Saul was not only a head taller than everybody else so he looked like a king he was also the handsomest guy in the room. So everybody thought, you would have thought, you know, Saul surely will make a great king. But as you know, Saul did not make a great king. And God rejected him after Saul had sinned and rebelled against the Lord. And uh, God sent Samuel, the prophet, to anoint a new king. And he sent him to the house of a man named Jesse. Jesse had a lot of sons, and uh, Jesse had most of his sons gathered together for this feast. And as Samuel began to go through the sons of Jesse to try to discern which son God had chosen to be the next king, he started with the son who was probably the oldest, the firstborn, who, just like Saul, he looked like a king. He was impressive in appearance, but God said, no, that's, that's not the man I want. And Samuel worked his way through all of the sons of Jesse who were there at the feast, and he said, none of these are the ones that God has chosen. Do you have another son? Well, yeah, you know, there's David, but, I mean, we left him out in the sheep. I mean, we didn't even invite him. You know, he's out in the field tending to the sheep. Samuel said, go get him. David was the one that God chose to be Israel's next king and who became Israel's greatest king. Once again, God turned things upside down. And perhaps some of you in this room, maybe all of us in this room, have something going on in your life, something that you're experiencing or feeling or struggling through where you're just thinking, I wish God would, would turn this thing upside down. I feel like the people who ought to be on the top are on the bottom and the people who ought to be on the bottom are on the top. The people who are wicked and corrupt and selfish and greedy, they're the ones who have all the power and all the influence and all the money. And all the decent people are getting trod upon and taken advantage of. The people who you think ought to be healthy and happy and enjoying peaceful lives because they're just decent people who trust the Lord and try to do what's right. They're suffering and struggling and facing all kinds of hardships and all the people who are doing all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons, they seem to be fine. Everything seems to go well for them. In those scenarios, when we see those things happening, there's something inside of us that says, God, why don't you fix this? Why don't you flip this? Why don't you turn this situation upside down. 
What most people don't realize about the story of David and Goliath, the story of David being anointed king, both of which happened against all expectation, what most of us don't know is how that story begins. It doesn't actually begin with David and Goliath. It doesn't actually begin with David being anointed king. It doesn't even begin with Saul. The story of David's kingship begins with a woman named Hannah. I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 1 if you haven't already. If you've been following along with us this Christmas season, you won't be uh, surprised to hear that Hannah was a barren woman in difficult circumstances. And it was through Hannah that God prepared the way for his coming king. Let me read just the first couple of verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children. But Hannah had no children. Now, Hannah's story does not get as much attention as it deserves, but we're going to give it some attention this morning. I want to start by pointing out to you Hannah's hardships, because this is where the story of Hannah begins. The first hardship that Hannah experienced was that her husband had two wives. Now, this is not terribly uncommon in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean that it was okay even in the Old Testament. There are people who have argued that in the Old Testament, God was okay with polygamy. He was okay with people having more than one wife. After all, Jacob had more than one wife. David had more than one wife. We know Solomon had lots of wives. And here again is this man, Elkanah, who has more than one wife. It seems like it's not a big deal, but it was a big deal. And there are at least two ways that we know that this is not what God intended. The first way we know this is not what God intended is this is not how God created things in the beginning. When God created marriage in the Garden of Eden, He created one man and one woman and brought them to be together. That was His original design for marriage. And everything that swerves away from that in any direction is wrong and sinful. So we don't have, God doesn't have to say every time somebody takes more than one wife, by the way, that was wrong. We know that that's wrong because that's not how God created it to be. The other reason we know that it's wrong is because of the fruit that comes from this. Right? How well did it go for Jacob when he had more than one wife? Leah and Rachel get along really well? No. What about these women? What about Elkanah's wives? Did this work well? Did they flourish? Was it a joyful family to be a part of? No, certainly not. So Hannah uh, is stuck in this relationship where her husband has another wife. And so her marriage is not the way that God intended it to be. The second hardship that Hannah experiences is that her womb was closed. She had no children. At the end of verse 
2, we're told that Hannah had no children. And then in verse 5, we're told at the end of the verse that the Lord had closed her womb. So not only is Hannah not able to bear children, but we're told that the Lord is the one who has set it up this way. The Lord is the one who has closed Hannah's womb. She's not the first woman that we encounter in Scripture who experiences the pain and heartache of barrenness. We talked about Sarah a couple of weeks ago and her barrenness. Um, uh, there are other women who experience the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a trial. It's a hardship. Um, normally we could say at a minimum it's a result of the fall. It's a result of sin being in the world. It's not the way that God designed it. But what do we say about the fact that in Hannah's case, we're told specifically that the Lord closed her womb. If the Lord is the one who blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If the Lord loves children, and why would the Lord close Hannah's womb? Well, we're not told directly in this story why the Lord did this, but I suspect that uh, if we were given an answer, it would be the same answer that Jesus gave to his disciples in John chapter 9 when they asked about the man who was born blind. Remember this story? Jesus healed a man that was born blind. Before he healed them, the Bible says this, As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's not blind because he did something wrong. He's not blind because his parents did something wrong. He's blind because God has set this up in order to show his glory and his power and his grace through him. Hannah's barrenness seems to be for the same reason. If Hannah had not been barren, we probably wouldn't be hearing her story. We wouldn't have this moment of dramatic divine impact in Hannah's life that draws our attention and helps us see how God can work in the most desperate of circumstances. So Hannah is a woman whose husband has two wives. She's a woman who's barren. And those two hardships come together to form a third hardship, which is that she was provoked by her rival, by the second wife. Right? Verse 6 says, Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, you don't have to have much of an imagination to imagine the kinds of things that Penina probably said to Hannah. I know our husband gives you all those extra portions on feast days and, you know, tries to make you feel loved and special despite the fact that you don't have any children to let you know that he really does love you. But we all know he just feels bad for you. He's just pitying you. He doesn't really love you. You're just a burden. You're not fruitful. You're not contributing. You're not giving him any sons. You know, probably the reason you don't have any kids is because God doesn't love you. If God loved you, wouldn't he give you children? Those are the kinds of lies, satanic lies, that Penina was probably irritating and provoking and uh, prodding Hannah with in order to distress her and harm her. 
We often think that our hardships mean that God doesn't care, that God is absent, that he's not interested. We often think, God, if you were there, God, if you cared, you would fix this, you would do something about this. But what if, like the man born blind, what if, like Hannah, the reason the hardship is in our life is so that God can show that he's there, so that God can show that he cares. When he answers that prayer, when he turns things upside down, when he delivers, when he saves, when he opens the womb, when he heals, that in the wake of that hardship, When God acts, then we see in some dramatic, unexpected way that God has been paying attention all along. He has been involved all along. He has been caring for us all along. He's just been setting us up for something good. Maybe that's what God is doing in your hardship. That's certainly what he was doing with Hannah. Hannah was broken. She was grieving. She was hurting. And out of her brokenness, And out of her hardship, she cried out to the Lord. And you probably know the story. She prayed and asked God for a son. And she said, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. If you will just open my womb, if you'll just give me a son, I will give him back to you. And in some ways, Hannah's story mirrors Abraham's story, if you think about it. Abraham and Sarah, also barren waiting for a long time for a son, wanting a son. And then when God finally gave them their son Isaac, then what did God say? Give him back to me. Sacrifice him. And Abraham trusted God, and God provided a substitute, and and they got to keep Isaac, but he called upon him to give him back. And in the same way, Hannah says, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. God hears her prayer. God opens her womb. God gives her a son whom she names Samuel. And then she brings Samuel to the temple to live there with Eli, the priest, or to the tabernacle. And she, she gives him back to the Lord. And he grows up there in the temple. And the Lord not only heard that prayer for a son initially later toward the end of chapter 2 or the middle of chapter 2 we learn that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters so God blessed her abundantly God uh, heard her prayer and and answered above and beyond what she expected but what I want us to notice in particular this morning is how Hannah responds when the Lord answers her prayer because sometimes when we have some, some burden, some hardship, some difficulty that we are praying for, that we're seeking an answer to, it's difficult for us to see beyond our own pain, beyond our own hurts, beyond the answer to our own prayers that we're hoping for. Right? But Hannah, Hannah is able to see beyond her own circumstances and see how what God does for her is just one example of the kind of thing that God does over and over and over for his people. And then she even looks beyond that to the time when God will send the Messiah. And in the sending of the Messiah, God will, in the most dramatic, the most climactic way, turn things upside down. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah prays this prayer that we read earlier in the service. I just want you to to notice a few verses. 
Verse 4, she says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. She says in verse 5 that those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. And then here's where she connects it to her own story. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. In other words, the Lord takes the circumstances in the world that don't seem right, and He turns them upside down. Right? He, the people who were full, now they're hungry. But the people who were hungry, now the Lord has filled them. The, the people who had numerous children... Right? and were, were proud of it or, or didn't care about the blessings God had given. Now God has blessed the barren who trusted in Him and cried out to Him and thought that she was abandoned. Now He has made her womb fruitful. Right? Um, God has lifted up the weak and He has brought down the mighty. Verse 7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Verse 8, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Hannah probably didn't know how instrumental her son would be in God doing those kinds of things. It was her son Samuel who anointed both Saul and David. It was her son Samuel who anointed the king that nobody expected. And it was right after David's anointing that he went out to fight Goliath in the name of the Lord. She saw in her own life, as she was barren, as she was downtrodden, and mocked and provoked, and God lifted her up, and God delivered her and, and saved her and restored her. She saw in that the kind of thing that God does over and over and over and over again. Most dramatically, He's done that in the sending of His Son. So much so that when you turn to the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke and you read that famous prayer or song of praise of Mary's that we call the, the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, Mary more or less quotes Hannah's prayer as she rejoices in the dramatic reversal that God has accomplished in sending His Son into the world through her. See if these words of Mary's don't sound like Hannah's. Mary says, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent empty away. Isn't that exactly what Hannah was talking about? Isn't that sort on a grander scale the same kind of thing that God had done for Hannah, that God had done for Ruth, that God had, or for, for Naomi, that God had done for Sarah? This is the kind of thing that God does. God turns things upside down. Nobody expected a Messiah who would suffer and die. Most of them didn't anyway. Most of them didn't expect the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, even though that's what the Scriptures said. Most of them didn't expect the Messiah to be born to somebody like Mary and Joseph. Just everyday common people, not a lot of money, not a place to stay. Nobody expected God to come into the world that way. But this is the way God has always worked. This is even the way that God saves. 
God doesn't save the proud in their pride. We have to humble ourselves in order to receive God's salvation. God doesn't save the rich because they're rich. If anything, he saves the rich in spite of their riches. Listen to how Jesus describes the people who are welcomed into his kingdom. We've heard these words a thousand times, but listen to them in the context of Hannah's prayer and Mary's prayer. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The good news of what God has done in sending His Son, the good news of Christmas, is that God has acted to deliver those who are in need of deliverance. He has acted to lift up those who are low, those who are oppressed, those who are weighed down by their sins, those who are insignificant in the eyes of the world. Paul says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Essentially, I'm paraphrasing, he says, look around. You got any nobility in your congregation? You got any people that are going to be, you know, uh, on the news this evening because of all the great things that they've done because they're so important and powerful? People just want to know what's going on in their lives. You have any impressive people? You got a lot of PhDs and MDs and congressmen. You don't have many people like that. Why? Because God loves to choose the people that the world thinks insignificant and use them and save them for His glory so that when we stand before the Lord, none of us can say, yeah, well, you know, of course He was going to pick me. Of course He was going to save me. Everybody saw that coming. That was expected. I was important. I was significant. He wanted me on His team. No, we all stand before the Lord and say, Not worthy, not significant. I was the last person in the world anybody would have thought God would use, God would save, God would forgive. But that's exactly the kind of people that God saves. Exactly the kind of people that God chooses. So if you're feeling weighed down by your sin, you're feeling insignificant, you're feeling burdened, you're feeling like you don't matter, you don't care. You're exactly the kind of person that the Lord would have His eye upon. Exactly the kind of person that the Lord invites to come to Him, to trust Him. Exactly the kind of person that God sent His Son into the world to save, to die on the cross and rise again so that sinful, insignificant people like you and me could turn to Him and trust in Him and be welcomed in to the greatest thing God has going. Bring us into His kingdom, into fellowship with Him forever. And Hannah, in some small way, saw that day coming. At the end of her prayer, the middle of verse 10, she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Part of what's so significant about it is that at that time, Israel didn't have a king. What king is she talking about? It's several chapters before Israel gets their first king in Saul, and then several chapters more before they get their first good king in David. What king is she talking about? There was a hope. There was a hope 
in the earlier scriptures of a day when God would send a king who would crush Israel's enemies, who would restore his people, who would make wrong, excuse me, make right the things that had gone wrong. And Hannah was tied into that hope. She was looking for the king that God would send to raise up and restore her people. And ultimately, she's looking forward to the Messiah, the Savior King that God had been promising all through the Scriptures that Isaiah will speak of later as the child who was born, who the government will be upon his shoulders, and, and he will uphold the Lord's kingdom forever, and he will establish it with righteousness and peace Hannah was anticipating the day in some small way, little as she knew about how it would play out. She was anticipating the day when Mary would take up her words and would sing in praise to God about the birth of the Son of God from this poor woman who would come into the world to save His people from their sins. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's the good news that God has given us in His Word. These are the kinds of songs that we sing. Lord, we're not worthy, but we're filled with joy because of what You have done in sending Your Son for us.